Hey there, listeners. This is Jasmine Aguilera, head of audio at the LA Times. Thank you so much for following and listening to LA Times podcasts, like Asian Enough. You'll still be able to find Asian Enough on your favorite podcast platforms, but starting April 11th, you're going to see a new show popping up in your feed. It's called Foretold. Foretold follows the story of Paulina Stevens, a Romani woman who was raised with the assumption that she would leave school, marry young, and become a fortune teller. Her fate seemed pretty certain until she decided to leave it all behind. With Paulina's story as a starting point, Foretold will take you past the neon psychic signs and trendy tarot cards to unravel myths and stereotypes that have followed the Romani people for centuries. If you follow Asian enough, you already follow Foretold. Be among the first to hear episode one on April 11th and keep following for new episodes every Tuesday. Can a fortune teller change your fate? Find out on Foretold, a new podcast from the LA Times. From the Los Angeles Times, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Jen Yamato. And I'm Tracy Brown. This week, we're chatting with comedian, actor, and fellow podcaster, Maz Jobrani. Maz first made a big splash for his performances with the Axes of Evil, a group of Middle Eastern comedians that toured internationally and challenged stereotypes in the wake of 9-11. Now Maz has a cult following across the world. He's known for his highly interactive crowd work and his personal anecdotes about growing up as an Iranian-American immigrant. I didn't see my parents from the moment I landed to the moment I graduated. We got to America, my Iranian dad. Ready, go! You're on your own, land of opportunity! We talked to Maz about the moment he decided never to play a terrorist on screen again, how he navigates the tricky territory of doing impressions on stage, and settling in America during the Iranian Revolution. My family came to America thinking there was going to be an end to that trip and they could go back to Iran. But that end never came. It just kept going. That's all coming up after this short break. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's our conversation with actor and comedian Maz Jobrani. Welcome to Asian Enough, Maz. Thanks for having me. You know, it's interesting because when I first heard Asian Enough, I'm always used to saying uh, Middle Eastern because that's kind of the region. But the truth is, Iran is in Asia. And I know that because whenever there's qualifications for the World Cup, Iran is part of the Asian group. So anyway, thank you for embracing me as a fellow Asian. Oh, thank you. And so we're so happy that you went there off the top because we definitely want to come back around to that conversation. Mm-hmm. But we do first want to start off with your comedy. In your stand-up, like you bring your identity as an Iranian-American to the forefront. Like anyone who's seen like your stand-up specials or have been to a live show, they see you start by dancing on stage Usually to Persian pop music. Mr. 
as a viewer, it's it's joyful, it's fun to watch, it's like a party. But I'm curious, why did you decide to start your sets that way? I don't know when it was that I started when I headlined, but you learn early on that music does help when you come out because depending on what that song is, it can really pump something up and wake people up. So at some point, I think I just started dancing to the songs. Now, sometimes it's Persian pop. Sometimes it's, as a matter of fact, I've started to kind of find songs that are high energy, but diverse. So I remember for a while, uh, one of the ones I started to really come up to early on was that song that was a remake of an Italian song. I think it was a DJ. It goes, Papa Americano. Boom. So anything that's high energy. Currently, I'm coming out to Dua Lipa's Don't Start Now. Ooh. You know, Don't Start Now. Because that song has this moment where it goes, if you don't want to see me dancing with somebody, dun, 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 dun. and then it goes, dun, 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 dun. so when it goes, dun, 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 I do a little shoulder shake and I do a little. <laughs> <laughs> but you're like a natural dancer too, right? It seems like you can't help yourself sometimes. I can't help myself. And I'll be honest with you, Jen, what I've seen is, because there's times when I go, oh gosh, you know, are the other comics going, oh, what's this guy doing? You know, you're a comedian, let's just come on stage, tell jokes. And I go, you know what? Screw that. It's a show. It's high energy. It's a great way to wake them up. Currently, the person I'm touring with is another fellow Iranian-American. He's actually, his father's Iranian, his mother's African-American, and he was born in America. His name's Tehran. And Tehran does a really good job. He's a high energy performer. So mm -hmm. he does about a half an hour before I go of high energy comedy. Now, if I came on after him and were to say, hey guys, how you doing? Go ahead and slow <laughs> down that mood a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I would just get buried. I love hearing that, though. I love hearing that that sort of running interior monologue of like, how's this going? Because you're constantly, you feed off of the crowd, right? Yeah. What are their backgrounds? Who else is here tonight? What are their, where? Wait, 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 wait. Pakistan, don't yell like that. Take it easy. This guy. So you've done stand-up for two decades at least now, right? So how do you now... How would you now define your specific brand of comedy? You know, like the crowd work that you do, the form of your comedy is one thing, but how do you describe the content of your comedy and what you're trying to achieve? You know, it's always evolved. Like when I first started out, I took a stand-up comedy class. And in that class, they said, take your background and finish this phrase. It's hard being, or it's crazy being, or I love being, and then fill in the blank. So for me, the fill in the blank was, it's hard being Iranian in America. Hmm. Okay, now why? And then you would brainstorm and you'd say, oh, well, you know, because when I was a kid, if I wanted to have a kid spend the night, the parents thought we were going to take their kid hostage because of the hostage crisis. That's like one of the early jokes, right? And then, and then you play out your mom calling and saying, hey, we just want to keep Jesse over here. And then their mom going, what do you mean keep, you know, or whatever that, is, you know. So th that was all early, right? And then that led to a lot of me talking about my Iranian parents, my Iranian background, my heritage. And what's interesting is I didn't start out with a lot of Persian fans at the beginning because I was performing at coffee shops and bars and then eventually the clubs. And those were all diverse audiences. So you go to the comedy store back then, it was either 99 or 2000, but first of all, they would give you the, la you, you wouldn't get the prime spot of the night. You're new, so you're going to get the 
midnight spot and then a celebrity comic is going to come in and go, I want to go up next and then they're going to go up next and someone else is going to go up next and now it's 1.45 and it's you and four drunk people and they're totally disconnected with you. But if you go up and you start talking to them and go, I'm getting paid $15 for 15 minutes. That's what they would pay you at the comedy store. But why are you guys here? And then they might say, oh, we are from Germany. And you're, oh, Germany. Wow. You know, what, what, you know, what have you been up to? And now you have a conversation. And maybe that triggers a joke that you have. And you bring it around, right? Mm. So I learned crowd work from doing that. Um, originally, it was a lot of just jokes about being Iranian. Eventually, that evolved into being an immigrant, because I realized we have a lot in common. And when I talk about, for example, there's a recent joke I'm doing now about how my dad, this is totally based on truth. My dad used to wake me up on weekends to go speed walking with him. And it's interesting because he was twice my size. So as he'd walk, he's speed walking. He'd be walking away from me and I'd be trying to catch up. <laughs> and right away I said, I think that's how immigrant parents spend quality time with their kids. They take them out and they walk away. <laughs> in an effort to show how tough life can be. You know, I, I, so in the joke, I'm going, dad, wait up. He's like, keep up with me. There might be a revolution. You have to go fast. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and, and anyway, mm -hmm. then I come to realize my father, like a lot of immigrant dads, and I bet you a lot of other dads that are American second, third generation dads, he was too macho to go to therapy. So I said, I realized he didn't take me for the walk. He took me because he needed a therapist. So he would unload all of his emotions on me. And again, when I talk about immigrant dads being too macho to go to therapy, I look out, I see every immigrant audience member going, oh, yeah, yeah you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that's when I started saying immigrant this, immigrant that. Now, all of that to say, currently I have a lot of material about the coronavirus. So I sometimes try to figure out myself. I go, what kind of comedy would I describe it as? I've seen, you know, on Wikipedia or somewhere, they said like observational comedy based around ethnicity. Okay, maybe, I don't know. A lot of it is just experiential. You know, I, it's about my experience and me talking about it and realizing that a lot of people go through the same things. Yeah. I do kind of want to go back to an idea you sort of uh, seeded earlier in your story because, you know, you, you talked about kind of how, like, your audience slightly changed, but uh, you have a cult following among Iranian, like Muslim, Middle Eastern audiences. Um, like one of our producers is Iranian. Like she's told us a story about how like her parents took her to see you when she was young. Uh, shout out to Asal. <laughs> uh, but was it your intention to reach this demographic when you started? I don't think I intended to reach anybody in particular. I just wanted to be funny. So a lot of times people go, oh, what's your message in comedy? I go, well, my first message is I hope I'm funny. Secondly, if I can make a statement and get people thinking a little bit. That's a bonus. And then when Axis of Evil happened, that was the first time you saw a group of Middle Eastern American comedians on American television. We were on Comedy Central and it was me and there was Ahmed Ahmed, who's Egyptian, Aaron Cater, who's Palestinian, and Dino Bidala, who's Palestinian. And I always say, first time you saw us, I think, on TV being funny rather than killing somebody. You do too, like, like people think just because I'm from the Middle East, I'm an expert on the Middle East. So, like, I got a friend, like, anytime the gas prices go up, he'll always ask my opinion about it. He'll always corner me. Hey, Maz, hey, Maz, um, in your opinion, what's going on with this gas thing? What is, what's going to happen? What's going on? 50 words or less. Break it down, would you? You're my Middle Eastern friend. Uh, I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't work at OPEC. I don't know. I, I pay the same price as you, you know? Like, I don't have, like, a discount pump at the gas station. 
Then we went to the Middle East and did a show in 2007. And that was crazy because when we flew over the Atlantic Ocean, I felt like we turned into the Beatles because we landed in the Middle East. I had no idea how well we were known until we got to Dubai and they go, hey, we're going to do a press conference. And I go, press conference? Who's coming to a press conference? We go to some rooftop and there's like the Khaliji Times and the Beirut, whatever, Gazette. And then there's NPR and there's people are interviewing us. This is 2007. We did 27 sold out shows in 30 days. And so that really raised our notoriety within the Persian, Muslim, Arab, Pakistani. I mean, I go places I didn't even know they knew me. And that's the power of YouTube, really, because when our special came out in 2007, people were taking clips and passing it around. And that was before social media had really taken off. So I remember back then, if you liked a clip, you would take the clip from YouTube and then you would send it to your email list of 50 people or whatever, and then they would circulate it. And somehow I was on several of these emails. Uh, and, it's the Maz Jabani chain letter. Yeah, my clip kept <laughs> passing me by and they were like, check this guy out. And I'll go, oh my God, I think I'm going viral. And so that helped. And then, like you said, the Persians have embraced me. So first of all, living in Los Angeles, biggest population of Iranians outside of Iran are in LA. Um, and then when I go to my shows, depending on what city I'm in, there's going to be sometimes 20% Persian, 30% Irvine, 50% Persian. And they're coming up afterwards and speaking Farsi to me. I'm speaking back. Yeah. Um, I said this half jokingly one time. I said, if you want to be a comedian or a singer with a good career, be part of a community that has been kicked out of their country. Mm. So whether you're Palestinian or in my case, you're Iranian. Iranians are everywhere. So when I go to Australia, Australians show up, but a lot of Iranians show up. When I go to Sweden, Iranians show up. When I go to London. The power of the internet. Power of the internet. Well, to pivot a little, but to go off of what you said, um, in a 2015 interview with the LA Times, you said, I don't consider myself an Iranian comedian. I consider myself a comedian who happens to be of Iranian descent. I'm curious what you meant by that. And do you still feel that way? Absolutely. I think the key is, because when you say I'm an Iranian comedian, you just pigeonholed yourself. Like this is, I'm playing for this community. This is what I'm doing. I'm an Iranian comedian. I, truth is, yes, you go to my social media, there's probably a lot of references to Persian this, Persian dance, here's, here's a Persian dance or whatever. But you come to my act and you see me for an hour. Like I said, there's, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes of pandemic. Now my kids, now this. And then I, and again, like I said, I don't even necessarily say Persian, I say immigrant. And so I'm a comedian who's going to touch on whatever subject I want to touch on. And I've performed in front of audiences from all backgrounds and they've understood what I'm talking about. Because if you're a Persian comedian, then you're saying, oh, I, I play to that audience and that's all I play to. And as a matter of fact, I've had Persians come to my show and be upset at the lack of Persian material. They're like, well, you should have done more jokes about some city in Iran, Esfahan or something. And I'm going, nobody here knows what you're like, I, I'm, you know, the Iranians are gonna know, but I go, did you look around? There's, it's a diverse audience. I love diverse audiences. I think it's so tremendous to like reflect back on that and see that you were acknowledged and recognized and embraced by communities of color. 
I mean, you shared a lot of this life um, in your experiences, in your book, in your comedy, in interviews. And some of those details that you share a lot are the fact that you were born in Iran, you left with your family when you were just six, and uh, it was right before the revolution in 1979. What do you actually remember about leaving Iran and those early days of arriving in the U.S.? Yeah, a couple of interesting things. First of all, Iran before the Islamic Revolution could be very similar to the West as we know it now. Um, there were discos and people could drink and, um, you know, we, there was a lot of Western influence. Matter of fact, just recently, I was at the Laugh Factory performing and Sylvester Stallone was in the audience. And I remembered as a kid, maybe four or five, I don't know how old I was, I remember seeing Rocky in Iran. And so after my set, I went up to him and uh, I just shook his hand. I go, hey, man, I just want to let you know that uh, I saw your movie, Rocky, in 1976 in Iran and how cool I'm now performing in front of you. And he's like, oh, really? And I go, yeah. And he's like, oh, that's cool. And he shook my hand and <laughs> that was it. But Iran, I remember Muhammad Ali, he was big. Uh, Muhammad Ali was a hero to a lot of Muslim countries because he was Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. But also my father loved boxing. So he'd watch Muhammad Ali fights. Um, and my father was like Vito Corleone in The Godfather. Like a lot of people knew him. He was helping people out. And he was a successful businessman. He had an electric company. So he was in New York on business told my mom, why don't you bring the kids during the winter break? Because protests were starting to pick up and it was cold. And he goes, why don't you just come and stay for a couple of weeks? And then hopefully things will quiet down. You go back. Well, of course, I always say we packed for two weeks and we stayed for whatever that is now, 43 years, 42 years. Um, and that happened. That was a common story. A lot of people didn't expect to stay. So we just kind of ended up in Northern California and my parents were spending a lot of time with other, there was a handful of Persian families. So where I was in Marin, very white, very affluent. Um, and then whenever it was 79, 80, whenever that was, the hostage crisis happens. Now I'm this kid from Iran growing up in Northern California during the hostage crisis. And my grandmother got me, I don't know when it was, probably early 80s, mid 80s. She bought me a pair of pants she thought I would like. She's like, I got you a little gift. I go, think. I, I open them up, purple parachute pants. And I'm going. <laughs> oh, nice. Hammer pants? Yeah, hammer pants. But I go, I go, I'm not going to wear these. She's like, why not? I go, I, this is ridiculous. Purple parachute pants? It's like the Joker with like, with nylon. I go, no, I'm not. But in her mind, she was like, oh, this would be cool. I think she might have seen like a Michael Jackson video or something. I don't know what she, hammer time, something. But anyway. Then there was moments where um, kids, they would call us effing Iranian, you know, in school uh, because of the hostage crisis. Mm -hmm. I've talked to other Iranians who said back then they either were beaten up, they heard of people, you know, getting shot, that kind of stuff. But I was a good athlete, so that helped me blend in. Mm -hmm. um, I had a big sweet tooth. <laughs> and I remember being at school and being like, yo, John, come here. Here's a Starburst. Here, Peter, here's one for you. Here's so-and-so. I bribed my way into friendship at a young age. I learned how to bribe people. Um, 
So between the bribery, the sports, and hopefully being a little bit funny, I think that helped me blend in as a kid uh, from another country. As you've mentioned, you came to the U.S. at a time where it was really hard for the Iranian community. But uh, the political climate, how did that inform whether your parents pushed you and your siblings to embrace like assimilating into the culture? Like how important was it for them that you maintained ties to your Iranian heritage? You know, my sister and I in Iran had been going to an international school. So we already knew some English. And then we come here and, you know, we're kids. So we hit the ground running, right? We're right away. We're speaking English, watching all the programs, becoming very Americanized. But our parents would take us to their parties, right? They would we're going to go to this party, that party, or they would speak Persian to us. I mean, that's what my dad didn't speak English to me. My mom didn't speak English to me. Um, and then we always had a grandparent around. So my grandmother lived with us for a while. Then my grandfather lived with us for a while. So that just kept us. There was never a conversation of, son, you must never forget your culture. Because they thought we were in it because we were in it. Because when I'm with them, I was with them. The one thing they would say sometimes that came close to saying we got to maintain our culture was sometimes they would say, you know, we have a name, you know, don't, don't embarrass us, that kind of thing. You know, we have a, you know so that, I, that, that was the idea of like, don't get into trouble because we're known in the community. You know, and I was like, who is this community that's so you know, concerned with what I do? Do you remember, like, when did you realize, oh, this isn't temporary? Like, when did you and your family realize, like, the U.S. was your new home? I, I, I don't know when my family realized, oh, we're not going back. And... It's funny because I was telling my wife about the pandemic. I said, imagine if the pandemic never ended. We all anticipate or anticipated an end to the pandemic so we get back to our lives. And I said, once we're in the middle of lockdown, it really hit me. I go, wow, my family came to America thinking there was going to be an end to that trip and they could go back to Iran. But that end never came. It just kept going. And there's still to this day some people who are older and they still are waiting for the Islamic Republic of Iran to topple so they can go back. Now, I always speak about how oppressive that government is and how much the people of Iran are suffering. And it breaks my heart. And I always try to be very supportive of the people and critical of the government whenever I can. Um, but I will also say I don't plan on moving back to Iran if the government were to change and become a freer society. I can't imagine myself going back because, you know, I've been here most of my life. I'm American. You know, as somebody, as a comedian who's made fun of the leadership, sometimes I have people say, oh, you should go visit Iran. It's beautiful. It is a beautiful country. And even if like one ministry, the Ministry of Culture were to say, come, I know by the first week, the Ministry of Interior would say, we didn't give you permission. You said this, this, and this about us. What did you mean? You know, you're a spy, you know. So do you have a, a fear of going back? Absolutely, I wouldn't go back. I haven't, you know, the last time I went back was 1999, going into New Year's of 1999. My sister, myself, and my two brothers went there. For two weeks, we were in Tehran, the people were amazing. The people are amazing. I mean, if you want to see kind of a good representation, Anthony Bourdain did a Parts Unknown in Tehran, and it's a big part of our culture. You go to an Iranian's house, they're going to make you eat. 
They're going to sit you down. They, I mean, it's crazy. So when I was in Iran, the kindness, the love, to, I mean, I hadn't been there in about 20 years. And I go to my aunt's house and I instantly smelled a smell I hadn't smelled in 20 years. And I was taken back. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That part of it was all beautiful. The other side that was depressing was Tehran itself was overpopulated, overpolluted, total mismanagement. I mean, these guys that are running the country are total bozos. Every young person I met would say, can you please help me get to America? I just want to find something to do. So yeah, it was, it was bittersweet because Iran really is a beautiful country. It's kind of like Italy in its climate. So we've got mountains with snow and then you've got the sea and you've gotten the food and it's got natural resources. It's really a beautiful place. So I really wish I could go back and spend summers there. Um, and the truth is the closest I've come is I've been to Dubai and I've been to Oman and those are right there. Oman, when I've been in Oman, I'll go to the beach and I look out from the beach and that is, I, I believe it's either the Persian Gulf or I forget what the body of water is, but I've thought about it and I smelled it because you can smell kind of like this smell of salt and sea and oil. And I go, God, Iran is right there. I'm so close. I'm so close, but I can't go. After the break, we talk to Maz about which stereotypes he's cool with highlighting on stage and which she's vowed never to touch again. Stay right there. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's the rest of our conversation with comedian and actor Maz Jobrani. Let's talk about your acting career and the kinds of roles you were finding, the kinds of opportunities you were getting when you first started acting. First of all, the first part I got was through a friend of mine who was making an independent film. And the film was about this Iranian girl, late 70s, New Jersey, hostage crisis happens and her whole life gets flips upside down. He cast me as this Americanized Iranian who's all about disco and picking up girls and stuff. So that was fine. I was like, I'm just some guy in college. Then I uh, started auditioning in Hollywood. First audition I get comes in uh, for a guest star part, Walker, Texas Ranger. Oh, the classic television show starring Mr. Chuck Norris. Exactly. Where do you think that's going to go? Well, you know, it was some sort of like, European terrorists or something. I go, okay, well, he's not Middle Eastern. All right, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll try it. And by the way, I have a day job at the time. So I'm like, I'm trying to take any job I can get. Next day, I get an audition to play security guard in a TV show called Chicago Hope. No ethnic, uh, you know, uh, description, just security guard. I go out, I audition for both. I get both. And my agent goes, which one do you want to do? I go, well, I'd much rather do the security guard where I have a scene with Hector Elizondo than playing some terrorist. So I did it and that was fine. And then after that, I think people start to go, oh, well, you're Middle East. You know, you go in for the, all the Middle Eastern parts. And of course, what's going to happen, especially as we go into 2001, now 9-11 happens. Now there's a lot of parts. And it's funny because some people see it as like, oh, well, you worked a lot. And I'm like, well, the opportunities that were coming up were always this, you know, you, you, the, the, did, you mentioned, you know, Walker, Texas Ranger. One of your big breaks or one of the big breaks you thought 
would be your big break at the time was in a, a CBS Sunday made-for-TV movie starring Chuck Norris called yeah. The President's Man, colon, A Line in the Sand, which I will have everybody know is on YouTube in its entirety. Oh, um, the worst, it'll be the worst <laughs> hour and a half you ever spend in your life. Such a bad movie. A role in which you play like a, I think probably like a third banana terrorist villain. Very impressive, Ali. Where did you ever learn such skills? I've lived here in Chicago for 10 years now. Your father, Rashid, he paid for my education. A PhD in applied physics from Northwestern. The Americans. They are very good at training their enemies to destroy them. You wrote in your book about wrestling with that part, really wrestling internally about knowing how these roles perpetuate really negative stereotypes. And soon after that, you decided to stop playing terrorists. Yeah, that part was the one that made me go, I don't want to do any more terrorist parts because what happened was I was playing an Afghan terrorist who was mm -hmm. a physicist who's going to create the bomb that the other guy's going to blow up a building with. And Chuck Norris in the movie plays a professor, which tells you everything you need to know. I mean, Chuck Norris is a professor, come on. <laughs> So he, he's teaching some class on like the Middle East and one of the students raises his hand and he goes something like, you know, Professor Norris or whatever his name was, don't you think we should just bomb all of them and be done with it? And then Professor Norris goes, now, now, Tommy, they're not all bad people. There's a lot of good people there. And I go, oh, there's, there's some nuance to this script. So I went to the fitting and they go, here's your shirt, here's your pants, here's your turban. And I go, oh, no, no, no. I go, no, let's get this right. I go, I, I have been growing my beard so that you guys can see. And I think if I just button this up, it'll be enough. I go, by the way, Indian Sikhs wear turbans, not Afghans. And by the way, if I were going to blow up a building, I wouldn't be walking around a turban. And they go, and the lady goes, you know, I'm just a wardrobe lady. I don't know what to tell you. I go, just tell the producers, they'll understand. So the next day I go to my trailer, pants, shirt, what looks like a scarf. I go, oh, I'll wear a scarf. She goes, no, that's a turban. You just got to tie it back up. I go, what oh, happened? No. And that's when I realized these guys were trying to simplify the movie for their fan base. Guy with turban, bad guy. Chuck Norris, good guy, go. So that gave me the icky feeling when I came back to LA, I told my agents, no more terrorist parts. Mm -hmm. But like, what are, are there specific red flags you, like you look for now in the roles you get? My manager's a fellow Iranian-American, so he knows to not even, you know, he knows we're gonna pass. So a lot of times he's called me up and been like, hey man, there's a part of a guy and, you know, he's this guy who does this bad stuff. And I go, huh, I, go, I don't even know if I want to go for it. Even forget the terrorist part. There was a movie a few years ago after Crash had come out. This movie was similar to that movie. And I forget what it was called, but it was going to have Harrison Ford. I think Sean Penn was in it. There were some big, pretty big names, but it was a bunch of vignettes in Los Angeles. One of the vignettes was about an Iranian family. And this Iranian family in the movie was a well-to-do Los Angeles, Beverly Hillsy type family. And the daughter of the family is dating a Mexican guy. And the father does not approve of that. So the part they wanted me to audition for was the brother who is also very, um, let's say, macho and misogynistic in ways. 
and racist in that case. And so in the movie, what happens is eventually I go get a gun from somebody. Mm-hmm. I follow my sister. She's in a motel with a Mexican guy. I open the door. I kill them both, honor killing. And that's our story. And I read that. I go, guys, I'm not saying honor killings don't happen, but usually it's in some village out in wherever, whoever. I'm not saying there aren't Iranians that are horrible people. But what I am saying is, if every time you're going to show us we're killing somebody and now you've taken this educated family and you got this guy going and kill, I go, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It, it dehumanizes us. There was a great um, gentleman by the name of Jack Shaheen. He wrote a book called Real Bad Arabs, R-E-E-L, Bad Arabs. Also made a documentary out of it. Jack was salt of the earth, one of the sweetest people I ever knew. His whole thing was he went and looked at all of the history of the depiction of Muslim people and Arabs and Iranians in American film and television. And he showed how negatively they were depicted. And then his thesis was, when you show these people in such a way, it makes it that much easier when you want to attack them to get all the people in this country going, those guys are savages, let's go kill them. And he's right. I'm curious then, going off of that, to hear how you even approach employing stereotypes, even to subvert them, you know, in your own comedy sets. Like we mentioned earlier how your crowd work involves calling out to the people in the audience. You you say, what's your name? And then you somehow, you have a very good memory for names, and uh, you you refer to their countries of origin or their cultures. Abdullah, where are you from, Abdullah? North Carolina, really? You're a, a, an Abdullah in North Carolina? Shit. How'd you get in? What did you... Given how easily we know even jokes about race could veer into stereotypes or be taken as such, how do you even balance towing that line of sensitivity and and comedy? Well, listen, it's become more um, sensitive now. I think you try to make people realize you're laughing with them, not at them. You do some self-deprecating stuff at the top. I mean, first of all, being an Iranian-American, I, I could talk about my culture and people won't get upset because I'm talking about my culture. That said, there have been Iranians who will come up and be like, we're not like that. And I go, I, I don't know. I go, that was my experience. Move on. Um, but, you know, the issue that comes up sometimes for me is, you know, I still do accents sometimes with parts. And sometimes I go, gosh, can I just do it without an accent? And then they go, well, this guy just came from whatever country two years ago. And I go, well, okay, he would have an accent. And I'm going to try and do my best. And then on that stage, you know, I, if I'm going to talk about stereotypes, it tends to be pretty innocuous, you know, it, and it tends to be on the side of the person, you know, for like, here's me skewering stereotypes, right? So I got this new bit I do about Dr. Fauci. I go, uh, every time I think this thing's over, Dr. Fauci shows up. You know, he's like, if you got two shots, try three shots and a mask, try four masks, five shots. And then I go, <laughs> I go, we were all shocked when he started speaking because I go, is he mob? I think he's mob. And then I start going into Dr. Fauci. I go, okay, I go, he's not mob. I go, but we all know he knows somebody who was in the mob. So now I'm doing Dr. Fauci. Like he was a kid and the main mob boss shows up and he's running with the wrong crowd. And the main mob boss is like, hey, you run along. Leave Tony alone. And they go, why is that, boss? And he goes, because he's going to amount to something someday. 
And they go, like what, boss? He goes, I don't know, like the head of the CDC. What am I, a fortune teller? Get out of here. So now I'm doing the Italian guy, right? Mob, okay. You know, I'm not saying all Italians are mob. I'm saying based on Fauci's voice, I feel like he knows somebody in the mob. That's mm-hmm. kind of the premise of that. So people might get offended, but I think for the most part, it's pretty innocuous. Um, you know, I think that helps. See, that's interesting because you're talking about like being Iranian-American, you have different communities who want different things from you, it, from your comedy, right? And you mentioned this in the beginning of our conversation, but one of the reasons we were super excited to have you on was that Iran is in Asia, and yet the Iranian community is so often seemingly left out of conversations about Asian Americanness. And so we were really curious, is that something that you've thought of before? Well, like I said, it occurs when the Iranian soccer team is trying to qualify for the World Cup. But for the most part, I've always categorized us as Middle Eastern. Um, But, you know, it's interesting you say that because recently I was driving around L.A. and I noticed they had this uh, Netflix had a campaign going about Asians. Yes, Asian-Americans. Yeah. Yeah. I saw Margaret Cho and then I saw Joe Coy. And then I think I saw somebody who I think was East Indian, if I'm not mistaken. And I had that thought that you just had because, you know, I, I have a special on Netflix and I was like, oh, I would have loved to be a part of this because the truth is, it's not just because, oh, I want to get my face on a billboard, but I've also come to realize that we're all part of this. We all got to stand up for each other. And so what you're talking about being part of the Asian community, absolutely. I mean, like I said, I've always considered myself as part of like the Middle Eastern American community, but... I want to thank you guys for bringing me into the Asian community. <laughs> um, I do wonder, because, you know, um, well, according to the the census, there is no Middle Eastern category. You're classified as white. Where do you fall in that, like, debate? We are white. Yeah, so that's interesting, too. That actually, the first time I realized that was going into college. So when it came time to mark your thing, and I go, oh, there's going to be a Middle Eastern or something, right? And there wasn't. And then I, I remember going to my, whatever it was, high school counselor and going like, what? There's no Middle Eastern thing? And they're like, no. So I wrote my whole essay, I think, based upon, you know, I feel like I come from a different place and I took some heat being who I am. And now you're telling me I'm not different? So that was the first moment. Then later on, it's funny because I would run into some Iranians who really wanted to distinguish themselves. It's like, we are white, we are Persian, we are, and you know. So all of that to say that a lot of times Iranians would embrace this, we're white, but I am of the mind of their strength in numbers. And I know there's a lot of us. And so I've been involved in a few campaigns. Every time the census comes around, I go, guys, just just hit other and put Middle Eastern. And it's a shame because really, if we were able to show that there's a million Iranians or Middle Eastern North African, MENA, they wanted to put us all together. We show there's a million, two million, three million, whatever that number is. Now... When something happens in politics or a a TV show that's offensive and we show up, they're going to take us seriously. But unfortunately, it, it hasn't happened. Sadly, we are running out of time, but we do want to do our one last weekly segment that we call Asian Enough Confessions, um, where we go around and share, you know, perhaps a moment that you know, we didn't feel quite Asian enough. Um, I'm biracial. I My mom's a Japanese immigrant. My dad's um, half white. But one day I was having lunch with my mom 
And she, for like out of the blue, no reason, she turned at me and said, like, you know, like it would be really nice if you got married to a nice Japanese man. Um, which was one, like there were there were multiple layers of shock in that. And that I'm like, oh mom, like if you still think I'm gonna get married to a man, there's a lot we need to unpack there already. <laughs> but number two, I was, you know, like, mom, like you're the one who brought non-Asian DNA into your lineage. <laughs> like it is, it is not my responsibility to somehow like re-homogenize our bloodline. Hilarious. Yeah. Good answer. Um, she's come around since then, right? She's she's come around. She's come around since then. This was a very you know like early early twenties, like when she thought I was going to get married young. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to do a really quick one um, because, honestly, I've, like, ripped my heart open so many times on this podcast already. I've embarrassed myself many times. But if we're on a parental tip, um, my parents, the story of how they met is not one that I ever thought was very Asian. You know, like, compared to, like, some of my other Asian-American friends' parents' stories. Um, But they met in the Bay Area in the 70s, whilst bowling for a Japanese-American bar bowling league, which in hindsight, I feel like is very cool, actually. Um, <laughs> here, here. <laughs> Maz, have you felt not Asian enough before? Yeah, growing up, every Persian party I would end up at, I would not feel Persian or Asian enough. Hmm. And I'll tell you why, because they would play the Persian music they would sit around, a lot of times they would sit around the perimeter of the living room or wherever they were celebrating. And they were just all sitting, kind of looking at each other and talking. And I always felt very uncomfortable. I was always like, this doesn't feel like a party. And there's a lot of like center of attention, taking turns with the center of attention. Like somebody will talk to somebody from across the room and everyone's listening. And I'm going, this is weird. I go, you guys need to, like the person next to you needs to talk to the person next to them. It was very formal. Sometimes Persians can be very formal. So to see a living room of people just sitting there looking and going like, oh, so how about you, Jen? What are your thoughts on the latest thing? You know how it is. They mm-hmm. sit you next to them and they go, so young man, they tell me you like to play soccer, you know? And I'm like, oh God, why, why is Miss Abdul Shahi interrogating me in front of everybody. This is the weirdest thing in the world. (laughs) That's a wrap for this week's episode of Asian Enough. And actually, that is a wrap for our entire season. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to our co-hosts, Suhana Hussain and Johanna Buya, and to you, Tracy, for making the season so special. Thank you to our production staff and to our wonderful guests for joining us. And thank you back, Jen. If you're new to the show, we have a treasure trove of episodes for you to check out. This season included conversations with folks like the chef Sola L. Whaley. I mean, I think food is my entire identity. Comedian Jenny Yang. I really hope that we continue to demand our space. And the actor Lucy Liu. And a lot of people had said to me, well, there's nobody that's out there. There's not a lot of Asian presence in media and television, film you're going to be very limited and you're never you're never going to make it and i just thought i don't know what that means i don't know what never means so let's just try if you love our show please leave us a review on apple podcast tell a friend about us tell your family about us 
and follow us on Instagram at Asian Enough Pod. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato. And by me, Tracy Brown. Our producer is Asal Asanapur, and our senior producer is Heba El Orbani. Our editor is Shani Hilton. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. This podcast was created by Jen Yamato and Frank Schunk. Special thanks to Clint Schaff, Jeff Berkshire, James Reed, and Matt Brennan. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of our founding producer, Lina Anwar. Thank you for listening. Jen, would you have gone to school in purple parachute pants? You know, probably at the time, I don't think I had any fashion sense enough to actually decide what I wanted to wear. But in retrospect, as an adult, I definitely wish that I had pictures of myself as a child in hammer pants. (laughs) 